Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 140th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Adam Schmela. Adam is the founder of Integrated Planning and Wealth Management, an independent RA based in Carmel, Indiana, that oversees approximately $45 million in assets under advisement for nearly 100 financial planning clients. What's unique about Adam, though, is the incredible transformation his practice has gone through over the past two years, as a shift in mindset has led him to grow revenue by nearly 80% over what he had built the first 10 years cumulatively by both raising his financial planning fees and going all in on a niche of serving optometrists. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Adam's marketing process has evolved over the years, from starting out at Waddell and Reed, where he immersed himself in local networking groups like BNI and Indianapolis Rainmakers, to beginning to shift his focus towards working with VDOCs, veterinarians, doctors, optometrists, and chiropractors, by focusing his marketing on white coat professions and launching a podcast, to further narrowing down his focus to just serve optometrists after realizing it's actually easier to market it and grow his firm as the target clientele narrows, which in turn has led him from charging as little as $400 a year for financial planning for his legacy clients to charging $595 per month plus $1,000 up front or over $8,000 a year in planning fees for his ideal target client. We also talk about the mindset shifts that Adam went through to reinvent his practice over the past two years after hitting the wall from his first 10. From moving away to setting his value in terms of the time he spends on clients and instead looking more directly to what his clients say they value the most, which wasn't the depth of his financial planning data analyses. The steps he took to raise his financial planning fees by as much as 100% to 300% over the past year to fix legacy clients that were being undercharged And the way he balanced bringing in new ideal clients along with raising fees on existing clients is a way to overcome his own fears that clients might terminate him for the fee increases, even though in the end, virtually none of them did. And be certain to listen to the end where Adam shares his top advice to fellow financial planners. If you're really wondering if you should raise your fees, the answer is already yes. How the transformation of his advisory firm enabled a transformation with his wife and children by allowing the entire family to reallocate the time it spends together. And how Adam has institutionalized the processes and workflows he's developed in Redtail CRM to the point that he's now also beginning to consult with other advisors on how they can adapt and implement the same efficiencies in their own advisory firms. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Adam Schmela. Welcome, Adam Schmela, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It is a pleasure and privilege to share in this conversation with you. I'm I'm excited to have you on the podcast today because you've had this, I think, interesting journey through the industry that that a lot of us have had. Kind of you know, start out in a large firm, bounced around to another firm, took took two or three stops before you found the the balancing point that works for you, and and now over the past few years have gone all into a niche and and like a a niche of niche of niches. I know like you you live in the world of optometrists. And not even just optometrists, but like optometrists that are evaluating 
you know, like roll-up aggregator sales because there's a version of roll-ups in the optometry business the same way there is in the RAA business right now. You know, private equity will do this in pretty much any vertical they can find. And you just have ended up building into this super specific domain right, right down to a homepage that, you know, has glasses with a clear view through them <laughs> and says helping optometrists plan life on purpose. And and I just love it. Like if you are an optometrist with life and financial questions, like this just speaks to you in a way that everybody else's, you know, walks on the beach, lighthouse and Adirondack chairs imagery doesn't quite connect. And so I'm, I'm really excited just to talk about this journey of what you've gone through of bouncing around different firms and bouncing around different business models and eventually trying to find a niche and figuring out what you want to build the firm into, you know, it, it's sort of the challenge and journey that I think we all go through over the first five and 10 years of the business. And so I'm, I appreciate you joining us on the podcast today just to talk about this journey and, and how you end up talking to optometrists considering private equity roll-up deals as a focus of your business. Yeah, well, you know, it, and, and the key word, I think, in what you were just saying is that it truly has been that. It's been a journey. This has not been something, I call myself kind of an accidental advisor, and maybe we, we can get into the, the backstory a little bit because it is relevant just not only professionally where I am right now in the business or businesses that I have, but also the, the personal journey that I've gone through and, and the personal lessons that I've taken from this journey in financial services. So, you know, for this opportunity and privilege to to share it and and hopefully give other advisors that listen that may find themselves in a in a similar situation or a variation in the theme, I appreciate the platform. Well, absolutely. So I, I think to start, I, I'd love to just talk a bit more about like the advisory firm. Just tell us about your firm, what you do, who you do it for. Obviously, I kind of queued it up a little yeah. <laughs> bit, but for everyone who just wants to get up to speed, like how do you describe integrated planning and wealth management? Yeah, so we'll start from the the from from current state and kind of work our way back. So currently, we are a fee only RIA. We went fee only back in. February of 2017 is when the RAA officially launched. And I guess we technically adopted the word fee only in September of 2018 when my insurance license finally lapsed. On a side note, I have never worked so hard to have insurance companies stop paying me trails on commissions. It, it's an amazing process that either I'm just really messing something up or I can't believe the number of emails that I and my team have had to send to a couple of the insurance companies to quite literally say, look, stop paying me. I don't want these this $43.53 of trails that you're trying to pay me. But again, a sidebar conversation. So, you, Like you couldn't get them to stop the payments? No. No, we had to get. I, I can't even. Exa I can't even explain exactly. Thankfully, I have a wonderful practice manager that has been doing a lot of that heavy lifting behind the scenes on my behalf. But yeah, so the fee only was actually a hard process to try and solidify, <laughs> and so. So that happened 2017 is when the RAA went. We currently serve, ironically enough, it's right at 100 households. I guess by traditional definitions, our profession slash industry has always kind of gravitated towards this AUM number. And, and I, I don't entirely define my business by just AUM. But for those that kind of want to use that as a benchmark, we currently have about 45, just over just over 45 million in both discretionary and non-discretionary asset center management. And that includes on the personal client side of things, as well as some retirement plans that we have as well for some of our, some of our business owners. And then 
from the beginning of my profession and my journey in financial services, I've always adopted financial planning. And so a much higher increase of our revenue is being derived from financial planning fees as well. So from a revenue standpoint, the $45 million or so doesn't translate to your industry average 1% or anything like that. We do on pace for 2019, we'll do about 110000 in financial planning fees, which is actually up from 41000 in 2018 and actually 2017 when I was going back and looking at our numbers and in, in, in prep for our conversation because we have experienced a significant amount of growth over the last two years or so, I kind of wanted to get that breakdown and just make sure that I was clear on my numbers. So we've had a, a pretty significant growth on the financial planning fees. And that that's a direct correlation to how I have in the last probably eight to nine months just become laser focused and specific on the niche that we're serving and made sure that our fee structure and pricing schedule accordingly matched that clientele. So all in right now, uh, 2019, from a revenue standpoint, we'll be on pace to do about 400000 with an EBOC of about, I think we're at an EBOC of about 57%. So that's kind of a, a snapshot of the practice right now. Interestingly enough, as I've gone through this process, we have actually parred down that client list by about 15 households in the last six months. And, and we can kind of get into that a little bit more on just how the how the practice has evolved. But prior to launching as an RIA, I was with Cambridge Investment Research, an independent broker-dealer. I was duly registered from 2011 until 2017. but And before that, I started out my first four years in the business. I got into the business to kind of begin this conversation or begin the journey in, of all times, April of 2008. And so I spent four years. (laughs) (laughs) I spent four years with Odell and Reed, then transfer transitioned my practice to Cambridge Investment Research. And then here we are as an RIA. I would argue that 2008, April 2008 was the absolute best time to get in the market, to quote unquote, get into this business and get into, into financial planning. I just asked, like, why do you say that? Because I think most people would kind of go the opposite direction, like, join the industry. Like, third of the jobs were gone in six months. I had the I had the extreme privilege of being both ignorant and naive, and I say that really just from a place of authenticity. Because, and to back up even further, which is going to set the table, I think, for some of our conversation later on here. I went to the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, go Phoenix, and graduated pre-med with a chemistry and, and, and also a business administration minor. And I, the reason I picked up the business minor was because by the time I was working my way through the pre-med degree, I realized that I didn't want to go on to medical school, but I was too far in that major to change course. So, all right, let's finish up the major. Let's pick up the minor. Maybe I can do something in life sciences with a business twist on it. And that's actually what I found myself doing while I was in college, which is where I met my wife, my now wife. We met in undergrad. And then when we graduated undergrad, she ended up choosing to go to IU Optometry School. And so she had a four year edu- another four years of education down in Bloomington, Indiana at IU. And while she was going to optometry school in May of 2007, I started working for Baxter Pharmaceutical Solutions as a quality assurance associate, working hand in hand with engineers doing batch reviews. So I was basically going through 
inches of documents and reams of paper, <laughs> quite literally making sure that every I was dotted, every T was crossed, everything was within threshold, that every standard operating procedure was followed. If someone's got to do QA, someone has to do QA. <laughs> and if it went wrong, then it was, all right, let's do a root cause analysis. Let's make sure that we understand. Let's let's fix the, let, let's not just mask the symptom, let's cure the disease. That was kind of our our philosophy and approach to make sure that it didn't happen again. I did that for about four months before I wanted to put a pencil in my ear. It was a great <laughs> job, but it just didn't fit my personality and my mindset. I'm a third generation business owner and I knew I knew just with the taste of business in in college that I wanted to do something. I wanted to own my own business eventually. I just didn't quite know what that was going to be. And just, I started, I, I always had kind of a closet passion for personal finance, not really investing. And I think that's the key differentiator there. I loved personal finance. I loved understanding how money worked. I had made some mistakes in college, in high school, and younger with money. I've seen it happen in my family. I've seen success with money in my family. And I just kind of had this itch that, you know, personal finance is fun. And then I started, combined that interest with not really being satisfied and content in my job at Baxter. I started looking around at, okay, what can I do with an interest in in finance? And lo and behold, just down the street from the apartment that we were renting was your friendly neighborhood Edward Jones office. And so I quite literally just dropped in there and said, so what does it mean to be a financial advisor? And lo and behold, the guy that was there was also a recruiter or brand, like branch manager slash recruiter. I don't know if they wear two well, different hats. Well, of course, hats. everybody else right? was out <laughs> knocking on doors that day. Right? The only person there is the branch manager. Well, and so I got two interviews in with them before they said that before you come in for your, was it two or one? I don't remember. It was, it was one of the next interviews in the process where they said a precursor, by the time you come in the next time, we want you to have 30 names on paper of people oh. that you've gone and knocked on your door. I never showed back up. I never showed up. Like, nope, not me. Not me. And which is interesting because they gave me that opportunity I didn't have sales experience. I didn't have a finance degree. I didn't have a marketing degree. I wasn't from the area, right? We had just moved from Wisconsin where all of our family was. So I didn't have a single other person that I knew in like a 300-mile radius. Well, you you know in retrospect now why they were willing to do oh, that. Oh, yeah. Right? Let's throw it against the wall and see who sticks. <laughs> One, and and the day you apply for the job, they get 30 qualified prospects. Yeah, exactly. You can't buy a marketing list for that cheap. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so that didn't last long. And then just by chance, I had my resume posted. I don't even remember what site it was, but I got a call from a recruiter about this this food processing quality QC job, quality control job up in Indianapolis. I said, you know, I appreciate the call. Thanks for looking out. But I'm actually looking at getting involved in financial services. Do you have any firms that are looking to add people in financial services. And he said, you know what? One of my good friends is an advisor for this firm called Waddell & Reed. I think they have an indie office. You should give them a call. And he gave me the name. He gave the contact. I reached out. I connected with their office, the managing principal at the time. By every measure of the imagination, should not have given me a chance. Again, no sales experience, didn't know anybody, knew the difference between a stock and a bond, but not a whole lot else, let's be honest. And again, against all odds and, and against all kind of prerequisites, to his credit, and I'm forever grateful for him for that opportunity, he saw something in me and 
affectionately gave me a desk, a phone, and a chair. And I mm. studied for my 766 life and health was activated in April of 08. Why I say it was a good time to join the, the profession at that time is because I was just licensed. I didn't have a client base to serve. I didn't have clients calling. They affectionately gave me their orphan accounts, which I always thought was such a loving name for accounts that have been abandoned in, in branch man or in offices, right? And I started practicing and getting comfortable on the phone and talking a lot of, I can't believe you're the fifth advisor in five months that has called me. Why, stop calling me. Like, oh, this is awesome. What did I sign up for? And uh, <laughs> But, you know, just started through that process and I learned very early on that I love to talk to people and I love to just sit and understand and listen to what it is that they had to say because at that time, I didn't really know what it was that I was going to be doing as an advisor. It was about going out, meeting people. I had a branch manager that was going to be sitting with me on appointments to try and understand the situation, but I had this thirst for knowledge. And so at that time, while I'm out talking to people and networking, I joke with people that I drank more coffee and had more after-hour drinks than anybody probably should in the first 12 months. But I just spent time building up my network and then also listening and reading and consuming as much as I could about just this awesome thing called financial planning. And that's how I slowly but surely started building up the relationships that I was serving at that time. And it was good because I had people to talk to when advisors that were in the business that didn't have something to tell their clients, either didn't have a service model in place, weren't returning phone calls, whatever. So it was that opportunity for clients to just say, someone will listen to me. Someone will talk to me. I'll take a meeting right. with Adam. And that was kind of that journey that got that, that at least got the momentum going for me to survive those first couple of years in business, because that's quite literally what it was. It was survival. So talk to us a little bit more about just, I mean, what were you actually doing to get clients early on? I mean, this is, as you know, like the, the point that so many of us fail or, or can't survive or can't get through, like, was it just heavy calling on orphan leads and you actually got some orphan leads that worked? Was that just a part of a broader picture? Like what, how are you actually doing business development as, as you got going in that environment? For me at that time, I did have a few successful, I guess you would say conversions, if you will, orphan accounts that agreed to meet with me and we struck up a good conversation, good rapport and ended up serving them in, in an ongoing capacity as their advisor. But I can pretty much narrow it down to two things at that time because I didn't have a niche. I didn't have a focus. So I right. was networking. I was a member of BNI. There was a local organization called Rainmakers. And that's if there were more than three people getting together to network and build relationships and talk, I was there. And then I also did events. I would couple the two together. So I would meet as many people as I could at these events or at these networking events that were for either BNI or Rainmakers or whatever it was that was going on, ribbon cutting ceremonies at the Chamber of Commerce, wherever I could meet people and, and, and connect with someone. And then I would organize events. Waddell and Reed had a good program that allowed advisors to basically, they would subsidize part of client events back in the day. Now, I don't know if they still do that, but they saw that other advisors had success doing that. And so they allowed advisors, I forget what, they would basically reimburse you a certain dollar amount per person per event that you did. And so I did everything from wine tastings to events at amusement parks. We rented out a theater one time. I mean, you name it, we did it. It's, it's, it's kind of almost therapeutic to go back and talk about this because it's been so long <laughs> since I've actually revisited that portion of, of the business, but it was a combination of networking and doing events and seminars. 
Okay. And on any topic or topics in particular? You know, in the beginning, it was, I guess I did have, I had a, what I would call specifically generic niche back in that time. Because even then I saw the opportunity or I saw the benefit of trying to focus in on something. I just didn't go all in on it at that time like I have now with optometrists. So in the right. beginning, it was with dentists and pharmacists. One of my, still to this day, one of my most wonderful clients that I work with, she's an absolute rock star and she would be, I guess, what we would call a connector. She was with CVS at the time. I ended up meeting her of all places along with another advisor. I, I tagged along with our branch manager at a recruiting fair and CVS was there as well. And that's when we got connected to Amy and she was, she was just a rainmaker for me. When we started working with her, then she allowed us to do events for her team and for the other leadership in CVS. We did intern events. So it was a specifically generic niche. I worked with pharmacists. I worked with dentists. I ended up connecting with a physician. And so that whole white coat theme kind of stuck with me with my wife in optometry school. I did a few events with optometrists. But as I think I've heard other advisors on your on your show say, there were times where, hey, it works so well, I stopped doing it. Because you get sidetracked, right? You you do an event yep. and then you have a lot of people to talk to. And then you, and I was just solo at the time. I didn't have an assistant. My first hire didn't come until three years into the business. Three, I think it was just under four years into the business. So I was doing everything, wearing every hat. And so we know that the traditional roller coaster of advisors, right? We spend all kinds of time prospecting. Then we find out we have all these great people to talk to. We end up bringing on a couple of them as awesome clients. You do great work for them onboarding, but then your marketing momentum just completely comes to a halt. And I felt that that was amplified for me because I was trying to do that same cycle in the optometry space, in the dentistry space, in the pharmacy space. And I never really built up a consistent, sustainable, and repeatable process in one of those markets. Markets, which was probably the biggest lesson that I learned going through that and which has started to pay significant dividends in the optometry space even since doing that just within the last eight months or so. Yeah, it's it's an interesting phenomenon to me that I, I, I have this conversation with a lot of advisors who are kind of thinking about niches, wondering about niches, looking at going to specialize in one and, and you know, basically say, like, can I, can I pick more than one? Either you know, maybe they're not sure which one they want to pick yet. So they, they sort of want to try two, or just there's this like mental idea of, of cosmic diversification. Like I'm, I'm less risky if I'm, if I'm dabbling in a whole bunch of these at once, instead of solely being reliant on one. But the, the challenge I find that always comes up is, is some version of what you're saying here. Like at some point you get this awesome invitation to go and speak at a local pharmacist's event where you can show off what you're doing and have a great opportunity to network. And then like two days later, you get another phone call and someone from the Autometry Association wants you to speak at a local chapter meeting and it's the same time. Yep. And at some point, you have to pick one of their events or the other. And whichever one you skip out on, you start losing momentum in that niche because there was a thing and you didn't show up for it. And if you keep going that cycle, one of two things happens. Either next time you do the other events to make up for the one that you missed the first time, and now you're a 50% show up at both events, which means you're not going to get momentum at either because you're a person who just only occasionally shows up so you don't really build the same level of 
you know, likability and trust by being fully engaged on an ongoing basis. Or you end up going towards one that's tending to work a little better for you and getting better results. And at some point, you end up fully focused in the one anyways, because you're only going to the one that's kind of creating the multiplier effects ongoing. And so there, there's, I've heard so many that try to straddle some kind of niche and fall into some version of exactly what we're saying here, like, you just can't get momentum when you spread across a whole bunch of different directions at once. Not unless you have a huge team that's able to do that. And that's what I thought that I could do, right? I thought that, all right, let me time block out my calendar and Mondays are going to be focused on pharmacists and Tuesdays are going to be focused on dentists. And it's like... <laughs> oh, so you had a whole system plan. I tried. I Well, yeah, my life has been about systems. And that's something that I've just, I've drank the Kool-Aid on very early on in the practice, both as it pertains to the business development side of things, as well as the client service. And I thought that I could systematize this. But the one thing that you can't systematize or synthesize are more hours in the day. And I just realized that for every new thing, there was a paradigm shift in my mindset as to how I started thinking about things and the, and the, the framing of which I was, I was understanding the variables in my life at the time. So we're all pleasers, right? We like to please people. We like to be liked and, and, and have our, our opinions and our thoughts heard. And I started to realize that for every new thing that I was saying yes to, something in my life was inadvertently getting said no. And I just, that didn't really come to resonate with me until I started to look at the last probably from 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, like that time, I was just kind of creeping along. I had a little bit of growth, but not a lot because I could never really get that momentum. I could never really get to that that tipping point in any one of these markets because I was trying to be a master of the ones. I was trying to have a client in this niche and have a client in that niche, or maybe not master of the ones, but master of the fours, because I thought that I could be, my, I thought my niche could be quote unquote white coat professionals. And I thought that I could create this brand, this, this, this resource that could serve white coats, whether you're an optometrist, a dentist, a pharmacist, or a physician. And what I realized when I started going through that, and I know there's a lot of advisors out there when we look at their websites and we talk to them that I work with dentists and I work with physicians and things like that. And from a practical planning standpoint, yes, there are a lot of things that overlap. There's that acronym that we've heard in the business called VDOC, right? Veterinary Dentistry, Optometry, and Chiropractic that have similar type business structures and thus similar type planning needs. And once they become a client, it's, I don't want to say easy, but it's, it's a fairly systematizable and scalable client experience. But from a marketing standpoint, I realize that, right, optometrists and dentists aren't playing in the same sandbox. And right. if I have to be playing in both sandboxes, I just can't. And I, I didn't have the financial resources or wherewithal to hire someone to be where I couldn't be because it came from a place of scarcity. I thought that I need to be everywhere just in case someone says, yes, great. Now let me talk to you. Let me talk to them. And that's been a whole journey that I've gone through in an accelerated manner in the last 18 months or so, which we'll talk about, I think. But I'm telling listeners, if you're, if you're even contemplating going into a niche, going into it with the abundance mindset, it's an interesting dichotomy because what I have found is that the more specific and targeted your message is and the narrower your niche is, the greater the impact and the greater the reach and the more, the more you attract the right type of people. And the beautiful thing about that, you know, you talked about my website, 
you're going to know in two seconds whether you're in the right place or not. So it's self-selection. It's helped me become really, really efficient with my time where I don't have to have that first discovery call with someone because by the time they're on the phone with me, they know whether they're an optometrist or not. And it's not a matter of, hey, we're thinking about working with Adam. It's we've read his stuff. We know who he is. We've seen his website. We've listened to his podcast. It's not, ah, we're thinking about working with Adam. It's like, I'm pretty sure we want to work with Adam. We're just trying to figure out what those next steps are. You said so much kind of really powerful stuff there. The, The kind of that realization, like all the things you're saying yes to means there's also a whole bunch of things you're saying no to. And that eventually that over divides your time or, or, or splits it up. And, and just the recognition that, look, you can have a wide range of different clients, even if you're, as you put it, like white coat focus on VDOC, vet stocks, optometrist, chiropractic, they might have some similar business and planning needs. They might not be that different when they show up in your office, or at least a lot of it is similar, but the marketing to them is completely different because they're at different places. They show up different places. You have to show up at different places if you want to meet them and connect with them. And at some point, if you try to make the messaging generic enough to appeal to all of them, it doesn't appeal to any of them. Exactly. That was exactly it. And that's the realization that I had probably third quarter or so of 2018 because I was just spinning my wheels. And I, you know, I started the podcast. I had originally called it The Dose. And I got like three or four episodes in before I realized that this just isn't going to work. I can talk about a, and it's one of my favorite phrases to use, I can talk specifically generic about cash balance plans or the difference between cross-tested and new comparability 401ks. But as soon as I start talking about how this would fit into a dentistry practice, now I've alienated every optometrist, every pharmacist, or every physician that's listening. And from a podcasting standpoint, from a content creation, consistency is key. And so I operated under principle, I want to make sure that I'm creating content that is consistently interesting to my niche audience. So I was very focused when I went into optometry on trying to be an inch wide and a mile deep. I know that my content, my brand that I'm building and, the, and, and what I'm putting out there for the world to consume is going to alienate 99.4% of the general public. But for the 0.6% that find it, that's all they need. It just speaks directly to them. And compounded on the fact that I'm married to an optometrist, I joke with people that I'm the closest that one can be to optometry without actually having OD at their name. So, And my wife lovingly acknowledges it, that I'm basically using her as a marketing piece in my game of chess, but uh, <laughs> she's helped me and acknowledge that. And, and we've leveraged that. And, and it's, it's been a great additional differentiating factor for helping me getting involved in the optometry space and, and this whole focus that I've had on trying to cultivate golden geese instead of finding golden eggs. All right, wait, explain that further. I, that, that's, I thought, a, yeah. that's a great line. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to cultivate golden geese instead of finding golden eggs. So leverage, right, and scalability are two words that I've always tried to capture and and understand how can I apply these two philosophies in my life. And so from a marketing standpoint, I've thought, okay, I can kind of do one of two things here. I can throw if we if we look at it from a pure both ends of the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, I can 
have my assistant pull a list of all the optometry practices in the greater Indiana area. And I can start knocking on doors. I can do local events. I can try and find all these quote unquote golden eggs. These, my ideal client, right? My niche client that I want to work with, or I can find the relationships that already are nurturing those relationships, cultivate that relationship or find that medium through which I know my ideal clients are already consuming and I can try and leverage that relationship to share information and share education that's yeah. going to help them make educated and informed decisions when it comes to financial matters. And that's how I end that. That was my approach in getting right now. I have a monthly standing column in Review of Optometric Business that I think has been going on for four years now. I write for two other national optometry publications and then the podcast is cross promoted in all of those. So in my bio, of every article is a link to my landing page where they can download a free ebook, which then gets put into my marketing funnel, my marketing engine. I use Active Campaign, combination of Active Campaign and Thrive Leads and Gravity Forms on my website to capture that information. But it's being pushed out there, it's being promoted by the platform that's already built. The online publications, optometrists are already consuming the information on these platforms. And the fact that I can share my information, again, purely from an informational approach with their readership, with their readership, it brings a certain level of credibility already to the table. And that combined with them being gracious enough to promote the podcast and put links to that on, on their on their articles has been the single biggest driver of new potential relationships in the last eight months. Interesting. Interesting. So... I'm fascinated by this dynamic. Again, I think it so perfectly illustrates what happens when you start going after niches and and focusing. Like you're writing for optometry business publications, in which I'm going to bet you're basically the only financial advisor who goes after them. Or maybe there's one or two other people who have similarly blended to this niche, but like you're not competing against 300,000 other financial advisors. There Correct. maybe is another one and you know you wave to him or her at conferences or something. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you can you can open the door. You're writing in publications that they see in things that are very specific to their businesses and financial world, which then cross-references your your podcast. I know which is not coincidentally called 2020 money. <laughs> Correct. Because they've got 2020 vision. I'd like the exactly. first time I heard it, I thought it was just like a reference to you know, like 2020, like planning over the next year or two. And then I realized like, oh wait, he's in the he's in the optometry niche. Like that's a vision joke. I get it. But obviously for your listeners, for your target market, well, I, that's natural. Like when they see 2020, their first thought is going to be like, Oh, cool. It's a podcast for us. Exactly. It's that instant connection that they have. I, the The show art that I had created, which was, I think, I think I paid a freelancer on Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R.com, right? For any listeners that aren't familiar with that, I think I paid $70 for that cover art. Best $70 I've spent on graphic design that I ever, I think. <laughs> Because it's a picture, it has my headshot, and then there's a furopter with a, with a pair of glasses, and you're looking at a dollar sign. And there's that instant affinity. There's that instant uh-huh. connection of he gets it. The title of the column that I have in one of the articles is Refract Your Finances to 2020 Clarity. 
And and even when you like glance at the episodes, I mean, it's things like buying and growing a successful rural optometry practice and like the path to multidisciplinary success. And, you know, why doesn't your young OD want to buy your practice? Like, you know, doctor optometrist version of succession planning. Glad to know what happens in every industry with trouble. Right. But like just things that if you're an optometrist, like this is your world, you are their people. And any other financial advisor they meet and talk to is going to be talking about long-term retirement savings and 529 college education plans and split-tested profit-sharing plans, which may have some technical relevance, but you're literally speaking their language right down to the name of the podcast. Well, it goes back to something that I learned a long time ago, and then it was additionally amplified in your conversation with Carl Richards. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And what I heard Carl say in your conversation with him was, people don't care about your solutions, they care about their problems. And once I, when, when I thought about how was I going to create content, the last thing that an optometrist needs, or for lack of a better word, that they care about is how to make backdoor Roth IRA contributions. <laughs> or Even though it's technically a legit <laughs> strategy for them, they exactly. often are high income and probably actually could do it, but it's not what they're up at night about. No, it's not. And it's something that, okay, so how can I keep, how can I drive interest in me? Because I'm not even going to have the opportunity or privilege to share with them what I know and how I can help them unless I first demonstrate and start building that currency of trust with them that says, hey, I get it. I understand your profession. I know that these topics are a high concern for you. And guess what I've done? I've gone out and found SMEs, subject matter experts. I've gone out and find successful ODs that have done it before. I've gone out and found resources that can help you solve this problem. Right. Again, free of charge, right? The, the platform is there for anybody to consume. And my goal with that is the currency that they're exchanging is not necessarily a currency of money, but it's a currency of time for them to listen, which I hope inherently builds up the currency of trust so that when something does come up in their life personally or professionally that impacts their finances, I'm coming to mind first, last, and always. Because at the end of the day, what I wanted to do was it wasn't about the traditional assets under management. It wasn't about how can I help them with their old rollovers because that's not their core concern. That's not what that's not what it is that keeps them up at night. And and then I'm struck as well of kind of the actual funnel that you start to build off of this, which it sounds like you're you do articles in these trade publications. The articles either mention that you've got a podcast. So like you're not even necessarily bringing them to you right away. Just go listen to my podcast over here. If you like that, you're going to come down the you know, you'll come down the road eventually. Just be a little longer. Or you're sending them to some kind of landing page, like a separate page that's just for, hey, you read my article, now get this ebook. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a separate landing page on our website that is able to be right now we only have three of them. And I'm I'm trying to again that that ever pressing question of trying to invent more hours in a day. But yeah trying to create more content to put on a website. I just recently finished up recording an on-demand webinar that we're going to host on the website where people can go ahead and view the webinar. Again, the currency that they have to exchange is not a dollar amount, but the classic landing page, provide your name and email address, which then gets put into our system, into our content funnel. And then they can watch the webinar on their time as they see it. Because 
as we've all realized in life, our time is our greatest commodity. We all only have 168 hours in a week. And I learned that I can leverage my time by having something living omnipresent online and give them that privilege of consuming it when it fits their schedule. So I don't have to do evening appointments. I don't have to do weekend workshops or seminars for ODs that want to consume this information because it lives evergreen on our website where they can consume it at their pace and on their schedule. And so the idea is people who come to your website and want to learn more about you, like you'll just have a webinar there, like watch this webinar and learn more about me? Or is it a more like specific educational thing you plan to do for them? It's an educational thing. It's so the one that we're getting ready to publish is a variation on the ebook that we have top five tips to financial freedom for optometrists. It's top planning mistakes that optometrists make and how to avoid them. And so it covers understanding your P&L, understanding a lot of things on a practice management side because, and I had to have this realization myself that a lot of the topics that I'm talking about on the podcast I'm not the expert on. I, and I tell ODs when they come on board, there's a very big gray area between a practice management consultant and what I'm doing. Having said that, though, and I tell ODs, once the, once the revenue hits the top line, now that's my sandbox. And so what is invigorating more than I can ever remember in this business lately ever since doing this is having more of the business consulting conversations with ODs about how to leverage their time, how to grow their practice, how to take more time off, when to hire that associate, when should I sell my practice. So they're, they're financial-related issues, but those conversations don't happen unless the practice management challenges get solved. And so that's right. where I can't, I can't opine on a podcast by myself in a solo form on how to understand your cost of goods sold and whether it's you know the typical cost of goods in an optometry practice industry standards are about 25%. I know that. I'm not going to be the one coming into your optical, but unless you get that under control, the ripple down effect on your P&L and the net amount that you have to work with and thus we have to plan with is reduced. So it's in our, right, the OD and my best interest to help them get on the practice management side of things, those ideas and, and concepts taken care of so that we can be more effective and efficient on the financial planning topics. I love it. I love it. I'm I'm struck as well, you know, that the again the the conversation you had of and framing you had around the the golden geese, like trying to trying to find relationships you can nurture that will, you know, that will pay more dividends rather than just going out to hunt for one client, one opportunity at a time. You know, I, I've I've actually found something similar in a lot of the niche marketing work that I've done over the years. Like I I call it the multiplier effect. I think very similar that, mm -hmm. you know, at some point, like you, again, you get these questions, you know, Hey, uh, if I get another client who's not in my niche, am I supposed to turn them away? And what I found ends up happening is the deeper you go into some niche and specialization at some point, it's not even just about the business opportunities in that space. It's that as you become known in that space and you work with more people in that space who tell others, and then you don't just get referred by one person, you get referred by seven people who you've all worked with in this community, it begins to produce a multiplier effect where the value of the next client in your niche is not the same as the value of the next client not in your niche, even if their dollars or revenue or what they're going to pay you are the same. Because a one-off client is still only ever a one-off client, even if they're a profitable one. And the next client that's actually in your niche 
is a client that then can refer others in your niche, can be the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh person who recommends you in the niche, which seals the deal for a very high profile client who you weren't going to get without a whole bunch of good recommendations and and referrals. And you know, that that phenomena as you talked about, like every everything you say yes to means something else that you're saying no to. You know, at some point, the new client you say yes to who isn't in your niche is time you won't spend with a new niche client or doing a niche marketing event or doing something else that deepens you in the community. And you lose the multiplier effects when you spend time outside your niche. Well, and that's – there's, there's different – that relationship is bringing multiple different sets of currency to the table, right? They're bringing – or different – different sets of equity. They're bringing their traditional from a planning sense, right? They're bringing their financial equity to the table of assets to manage or the, the bare bones financial planning things that we all know. But then to your point, there's the relationship equity. There's the influence equity. There's all of these different spokes that come out from that relationship that unlike someone that has a quote unquote like a marketing niche in a different where Ron Carson talks about passion prospecting. And my biggest differentiation or my biggest disconnect that I have with that is from a marketing standpoint, passion prospecting works because yes, you're surrounding yourself and assuming that your passion has profitable clients. Okay. Yes. You can leverage your time by being around potential relationships. But where I feel like my approach is a more efficient one is that not only in a marketing side am I hanging out and and being asked to present and being asked to speak and attending I'm attending as many optometry conferences as I am advisory conferences in 2019 and that scale will tip more towards optometry in 2020. And so on the marketing side of things I'm doing the same thing as passion prospecting but where I feel I have the additional edge from an efficiency and a profitability and a time in the practice side is once they become a client, the technical knowledge that I have to know, and you talked about right leveraging team, that's why I'm in the process of hiring my first associate advisor right now, the technical knowledge that he or she and I will have to have, there's only so many different ways you can set up an optometry practice. All the numbers are a variation on the theme between X and Y. And so we need to know a few things really, really, really well, as opposed to a passion prospector, you might meet someone that works at Boeing, you might meet a freelancer, you might meet a real estate agent, you might meet, right, a master of the ones. And so now you have to go out and learn all new benefits, all kinds of different benefit packages, all different types of comp packages, all these different technical side of things that you really don't know what you're signing up for. And I don't have to worry about that because I know that an optometry practice for a one full-time equivalent probably does between six and 700000 in revenue. And I know what the profit margins are. And therefore, I know what the 401k is going to look like. And that it just ripple effects from there, which makes the behind-the-scenes heavy lifting of planning much more, again, back to the system side of things, much more scalable, repeatable, and predictable. Yeah, it's, you know, one of the lamentations I, I hear so often from firms around financial planning like like doing like the the real hands-on advice work of financial planning is like it's so time intensive it's impossible to scale you have to hire all these people it's very costly and to me the piece that they miss is the point that you, that you just made which is the reason why planning work is is so inefficient for so many firms is because we keep trying to do this 
I'm everything for everyone. Like just, you know, give me any client who walks in, I can figure out how to analyze their situation and I'll look up whatever I need to know and I'll file, I'll bring the expertise to the table and, and I'll give them recommendations that improve their financial life. And that may be true that you can do that and that that is valuable. But the distinction in a practice like yours where you focus in this niche is you don't have to do basically any research for the next one, five, 10, 20, 50 clients who come in because you know other businesses work and the practices work, what the standard numbers are and what the standard strategies are and all the stuff that most of us, I think, just take for granted. Every new client you work with has a couple hours of researchy things that you got to look up that's unique about their situation. You don't have that time. I mean, you do on like the first one or two or three clients who have that problem and then you've seen it a bunch and you've learned it and you know it cold and and now you're off and underway again. And so that that efficiency effect, like one of the biggest aspects of scaling financial planning that you seem to be living so well is the more focused you get on who you serve, the easier it becomes to scale because you're actually giving largely the same advice with the same systems to the same set of clients. And obviously, individual client circumstances still vary to some extent, but like the variability is the last five or 10% at the margin because you already know 90% of it cold that anybody else would have to spend hours to learn just to get halfway to where you already are. Yeah. And the, and the biggest variable in that equation is the spouse, right? Of, of the OD. I would say, I don't want to say a coin flip, but it, it is kind of that of whether or not the spouse actually does work outside the home or a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but there are certainly a number of occasions where the spouse is working in the practice, either from a planning standpoint of just putting them on the payroll to make additional 401k contributions and maybe participate in a profit sharing contribution, or they actually are working as the practice manager or they're a stay-at-home spouse. So that is the only other variable that does come into play a little bit, but it's not that's something that comes down the road after we're involved in planning because the reason that they're reaching out in the very beginning is because of a pain point that they feel in their practice. So by the time we get to that planning point, we already have the relationship equity and the trust with the client that it's it's not like we're solving some major key concern for something that we don't know anything about right away. So Talk to us more about kind of the, the the focusing into this niche. You said that you know it, it had kind of been out there. You were doing the white coat thing and sort of a broad VDOC focus, then started shifting more directly into optometrists because you felt like you weren't getting momentum where you were. But then said like you've had this you know big explosion of of growth and focus in the niche over the past year or two. So what is it that's that's driving the the shift that you know, you're you're already almost ten years in the business and then suddenly decide like okay I've been doing it for ten years but year eleven like this is totally the year of the optometrist. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so I will certainly get to the methods of how that happened, and we've already talked about some of the methods, but none of the methods would have happened if I wouldn't have first understood the mindset shift that needed to happen for me very personally, which then gave way to the professional mindset shift. And, and what I mean by that is my client base up to this point, up to about the last year or so, I joke with advisors and, and, and with my coach, right? I'm, I'm, I'm part of the Limitless Advisor Coaching Program and Stephanie and I have, Stephanie Bogan and I have had this conversation that I was, I was kind of running a dysfunctionally functional practice. So it was, 
it was it was humming along and it was it was okay. I had a good client base. Every single one of my clients I love and I and I I serve them near and dearly and and we have a great chemistry and a great rapport, but I was still just kind of spinning my wheels as far as the trajectory of where I knew that I wanted to be in my practice versus where I kept finding myself showing up. And I wasn't able to really make that jump into to have the confidence, actually, let me back up. I, it took a certain level of courage to get to the point of having confidence to, in essence, burn the ships and say no to pretty much every new relationship that didn't have OD after their name. And that only came by way of working with the coaching program and, and really peeling back the layers of the onion on me and how I understood where my true value was in clients. You know, you talked about the amount of research that advisors will put into plan design and plan creation and plan presentation. And that was me to a T. I mean, I would, I would pine for hours over a client's case trying to, again, back to my quality control days, make sure that the Monte Carlo analysis was just perfect. Oh, I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about that. Like, Using financial planning software with a background in doing QA, QC, like our software must drive you nuts. So I have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with eMoney. And I, and I do. I, I love eMoney for the horsepower behind it. But I would, and, I, and I've done this more times than I care to admit, I would spend hours on eMoney and I would be on the phone with support to try and figure out why for my 35-year-old client in year 75 of their cash flow analysis, there was some spike in, ta in their tax bill. And it's embarrassing for me to think about the number of the amount of intellectual energy and hours that I spent trying to do that because – and when, when I really think back and reflect on it now, the reason that I was doing that was because I was putting value on the numbers and the data in the plan as opposed to the effect of the relationship and the output of the relationship and what the client actually cared about. Not once can I think back to one of those cases that I did where when sitting with the client, there's – boy, you know what? I'm really happy that my tax bill when I'm 73 is as low as it is right now because, you know, the planning that we've done, boy, you've sure had an impact on that. I'm being somewhat facetious and, and kind of speaking in hyperbole there, but it spoke to the underlying absence of value that I was connecting or not connecting to what it was that I was doing for clients and what they wanted me to do. And when I connect that disconnect in my mind of how I was thinking about my practice, I was realizing that the result of that thinking manifested itself in the health of my practice. And once I really went through that process of understanding my value and being clear and confident and capable of what I could do for clients and the impact that I could have, that's when I basically, for lack of a better word, Michael, kind of just reinvented my practice in 2000, late 2017 and really put a lot of momentum behind that in 2018. And we haven't really taken our foot off the gas here in 2019 either. So going through that process and getting clear on that is what has allowed me to have the confidence and or the courage and now confidence to be all in optometry. And again, the, the interesting thing that I didn't see coming through that was just this incredible dichotomy of the more narrow I've become, the more opportunities both in direct potential and existing client relationships, as well as 
opportunities to do speaking engagements, opportunities to present at optometry schools and write for additional publications. So can you frame up just a little bit more? Like what, what exactly was the mindset shift for you? Like, as you look at where you are or how you're looking at now versus where you were, like what, what was the essence of what changed in your head? I think the the biggest thing for me was that, you know, I grew up in a blue collar household and in, in my experience growing up, the, my interpretation of the amount of money that you made was a direct correlation to the number of hours worked and, mm. the, and the, the amount of effort put into that. And that manifested itself in my actions, both behind the scenes with existing clients or new clients, you know, back to my example of doing the incredible amount of data entry into e-money and things like that as well. Right. Like I, the more hours I spend on my, on this plan, the more I'm value, I'm validating that it's worth the thousands of dollars I'm going to charge. Exactly. And then, and what I feel almost, what I feel really bad about is that I would manifest that cell, manifest it into the number of client appointments that I would have. I would schedule client appointments more than necessarily needed or have longer appointments with clients as a way to validate the fee that they were paying. And when, I, and, and when we talk about that fee schedule, I had some clients that were paying on an annual basis back then what their monthly subscription is right now, their monthly financial planning subscription. And so I tell people that I was, I was successful or I am successful up until this point in spite of myself. <laughs> and it's in all honesty, it's through the work that you've done in this podcast and the relationships that I've connected with through your work and in, in this profession that have allowed me to become clear in that. And the biggest way that I did, it, it allowed me to become clear in what I was doing for clients. And the biggest way that I started to get that was by actually asking clients, novel approach, right? Actually asking clients, what is it that I do for you that you see value in? And so I went back to our clients and I basically surveyed them. I asked them, what are the values and qualities that you see in me? How have I demonstrated those values and qualities to me? And, and how would you basically kind of sum up our relationship? Wait, wait, well, the, say those questions again. Like I'm, I'm struck by this. So you asked them, what are the values and qualities that you see in me? And I got and I and I received or I, I learned about these three questions through a book that was written by Lou Casera called From Selling to Serving. Lou is a phenomenal the, the book just really resonated with me. He's primarily in the insurance field. I believe he is with Mass Mutual right now, but he's built a in that sandbox, right, in the insurance sandbox, a phenomenally successful business. But he's also started a coaching program around that. And his premise of from selling to serving is a lot of what we talk about as advisors and the shift that we've had in the planning profession and the investment side of things of going from, quote unquote, product sales to now planning and professional service. And it was this idea of how do I connect with someone and build a relationship and how do I show up in someone's life how do I measure that? Because we don't know how we show up in someone's life unless we ask them. And when we think about like people hang out with like people and associate with like people, well, your values are going to be a reflection of the people that are in your life. Because if you don't share the same set of core values that they do, they're not going to associate with you. Mm -hmm. And so if you first ask them that question of what are the values and qualities that you see in me, which underlying to that question is 
these are val- or underlying to that question your understanding what are their core values oh because it, instead of saying dear client what are your core values you ask them what are the values and qualities you see in me because they'll answer the ones that resonate with them naturally correct correct okay and then it's a matter of understanding okay how have i demonstrated this to you how, how have i shown up in your life right you, you may be able to see these things well well that's fine that, that's great that you see that i'm trustworthy and that i'm and the thing is a lot of the i wasn't mind blown by some value that i didn't think that i already had it was more or less for me the, the biggest takeaway was how have i done that how have i shown up in your life how have i demonstrated that and it wasn't you're trustworthy because you gave me an 85 page financial plan it wasn't you act with a great sense of integrity because your performance reports are nicely collated and colorful right it, it was it was the intangibles of the relationship the intangibles of the relationship and how i interacted with them the conversations the questions that i asked that really connected with me and then what i started to do i took the answers to that and then i just started proactively keeping an ear out for victories that i would have with clients little emails that i would get little thank you, little notes that i would get i started in our conference room i have a thank you board that has kind of a collage and it's in one of our videos that's on our website that is just a collection of every thank you note that we've ever received from from anybody that that I've done work for whether it be a client or you know any any a partner that I've done a presentation for because our mind is what's the phrase our mind is a a, a wonderful servant but a horrible master yeah and the message that i was telling myself the conversation that i was having between my ears was you're a human biology graduate. You never owned a stock before you got into this business. You don't have a, at the time, didn't have a CF, didn't have the CFP. Why should someone pay you thousands of dollars a year to take advice from you? And until I started getting that feedback, and then as soon as I started having those thoughts, I would go back and read my, I call it my wins. I have a notebook in Notion. I'm starting to use Notion now. I used to use Evernote. So I have a my wins page in Notion that I review multiple times per week. I have an affirmations page. I have a visualizations page because just like we take a shower every day to wash off the dirt from yesterday physically, I believe that we have to take a mental shower every day as well to wash off the dirt from yesterday. And so while I can't sit here and say that I am, that I do it every single day, it is multiple times per week that I'm going back and revisiting that list because I have the blessed curse, I guess you could say, of just these negative conversations continue to come up in my mind. And I wonder, like, I'm trying to just reprogram my mind, right? Our minds are a computer. So I'm trying to rewrite that program. And I've made a lot of progress over the last 18 months. And it's worked so far. So I'm just going to continue to do it. <laughs> it's fascinating. So in essence, you, you took the the feedback from these questions of of what are the values and qualities you see in me and how have I demonstrated this to you and, and created these like wins page and affirmations page of just whenever whenever that self-doubt moment shows up because everybody gets it from time to time, some of us more often than others, like go back and look at that page. <laughs> yeah. Remind yourself what actual people who pay you thousands of dollars said they like about you and just helps to bolster the courage a little of like, oh, this is why I do what I do. I charge what I charge and I'm really worth it. 
Well, and, and that was that was one of the things that just you know the most recent example. When I say recent, it was actually the end of uh, middle of 2018, something along those lines. I had one of my bigger relationships that when I added up both, because because I charge separately for financial planning and investment management, they are two separate services, two separate fee schedules. And so when we were going through the advisory contract and financial planning engagement. And their financial planning fee that I charged was $4,500 and they had a little over $3 million, which at our breakpoint was 50 basis points. And when I was presenting the all-in fee, it came out to $23,000, I think it was, something along those lines. And I'll tell you, Michael, I was a nervous wreck going into that conversation because it's still in my mind I have this imposter syndrome feeling of – don't you know, like, it's just me. I'm, I'm not that big of a deal or I don't feel like I'm that big of a deal, but I'm going to present to you a $24,000 annual fee and I'll never forget their response. They looked at each other and they said, oh, that's a bargain. And I'm, I'm <laughs> like, oh, okay. I mean, I didn't exactly say that, but obviously poker face on and just all business and yeah. went and signed everything and happiest clients of the day. And And that's where one of my biggest journeys and biggest growth, one of the biggest places that I've made growth has been in understanding and being clear on the value that I deliver and that it's not up to me to decide where my value is. We're transparent in fee schedules. Clients on the financial planning side are quite literally either writing a check or we're debiting the account through advice pay on a monthly or quarterly basis. If they didn't see value, guess what? They'd leave. And yeah, so, it's not that hard. You just go in and cancel your fee and exactly. automatically rebilling. Yep. Yeah. And so I've I've really, and again, through the work with Limitless has really kind of helped me connect the dots on, or I should say bridge the gap to this pool that my mind has been in for so long to where it actually can be. And that's that's what's been just so fascinating about the journey that I've been on, which hasn't come without its challenges, obviously, but it, it's it's been fun to go through it up into this point, and I'm just I'm really excited about what what's going to happen here in ironically enough 2020. I I love the the statement that you made that it's not up to me to decide where my value is because I I see this a lot as well in, in our advisor world that like either we want to sort of point to a particular thing like this is my value this is what I'm doing that's valuable you have to. You have to buy and value this. And you know, sometimes we get it right and sometimes we we don't. But just that I think sometimes we tend to miss the fact that clients just view our fees and what we charge and what we do through their lens and not ours, right? For for you, I'm gonna imagine like, you know, pitching for a twenty-three thousand dollar client is, you know, one of the one of the bigger, most expensive clients, you know, uh, highest fee clients that you'd have. That's a big client for most people. But from the client's lens, like, well, you know, actually, we've talked to several advisors, and you seem to be the best and you're the cheapest. So we're psyched. Right? Like, we're, (laughs) we get caught in our head, like, what on earth am I going to do per hour to justify this $23,000? And the client's looking at us saying, I think you can help solve my pain point. And I think you're actually a better deal than anybody else. So I'm excited to move forward. And here's what's interesting about that, though. They weren't even they weren't even shopping. They were do-it-yourselfers. Amazing. They they hadn't even they had just 
but they fell into the traditional and, – and this is where, again, I think advisors, myself included, need to be reminded that what we know, there's so much delta and there's such a disparity between what we know as advisors compared to what 99% of the general public knows about proper – and sound financial planning and investment management. This client, when they first started working with me, I quote, said, you know, we'd like to be a little bit more conservative. So can, can, are, are you going to use just like an S&P index fund for our portfolio? And any advisor, when you say the word conservative and S&P index fund, like that's not a thing. <laughs> and so their perception of what they thought was going to be right and good for them it was about, again, understanding what their problems are, not necessarily what our solutions were going to be. So what was what was the trigger for them that, I mean, do you have any idea even in retrospect, like what was their pain point so bad that $23,000 was a bargain to solve? They He had retired. He was a physician and had just closed his practice down and his son was already a client of mine as well. And got the connection and the introduction from from their son. And it was one of those things where they just wanted to make sure as they transitioned into retirement, as we've probably had most clients say, and I've had the clients say to me as well, you just look at your portfolio a whole lot differently when you depend on it for your paycheck. And they wanted to make sure that they understood that the cost of making the wrong decision right now in retirement was amplified. And when that income went away, when he stopped practicing, I think that was the tipping point into saying, you know what, we, we just don't want to do this on our own. We want someone to do it on our behalf. We want to enjoy life. And, and from a service standpoint, again, this is where the disconnect happens with advisors all the time and where I personally operate as well from kind of the, I wake up almost every day and come into the office some would call this a fault. I'd maybe call it fuel. I come into the office every day almost scared, dare I say petrified, that every client's going to fire me because I'm not doing enough from a service standpoint. And then I remember the feedback that the son gave me when we got together after we onboarded his parents. And before him and I even got into conversation. He's just said, you know, Adam, I just got to say, my parents absolutely loved you. They could not believe that you took the time to get on the phone with them with their previous financial institution and help them with their transfer into over to TD Ameritrade. They were so impressed by you doing that. And I, and, and of course, in the <laughs> like, conversation, I'm just saying, like, yeah, well, no problem. That's yeah. and in my mind. I'm thinking $23,000 for the fact that you picked up the phone to call the former institution and help them not have an awkward conversation with a customer service rep. But here, here's the interesting thing about that is that what we think as advisors of where the service standard is for, for every advisor that's, that's listening to this podcast, right, we're, we want to do the right thing for clients. We, we operate on a, an incredible sense of integrity and level of compassion and care for our clients. But from their perspective, the service bar, based off of what they've experienced, at least in my own specific situation with this client, it's not even on the same playing field because right. if to them blowing their mind was making a call to their previous custodian to transfer funds, okay. So, so I get kind of the, the mindset shift around rethinking what your value and where your value is and value in the eyes of the client and not, you know, the number of hours you put into it. What was the shift for you to go from all right, I'm going to try to do this VDOC thing and we'll be a little bit more niche oriented into I'm so completely all in on 
optometrist, I, I think you actually use the words like I'm burning the ships, right? Like right. We're, we're, <laughs> we're torching everything so you can't go back. We're all, we're all in on this thing. So what, what drove that piece of the shift for you? Is that just a, a sheer frustration of doing it the way you were doing it and just not getting the results you wanted and said, screw it, I'm, I'm just going all in? Or was there something else around the what's driven this as a shift for you? It was a combination of two things. One of them was when I launched the podcast, when I launched the dose back in September of 18, I started to realize really early on that creating good content was going to be difficult. And so I was trying to figure out, I kept trying to play in that sandbox. I didn't really expand my mind to thinking, well, what if I did this? And and around that time when it was around September within, again, I keep re- referencing Limitless because it's it's just been such an impactful program for me personally and professionally. We were getting together at, we do two retreats per year. And the second one in September is around marketing. And when we were at the marketing retreat, I don't even think that they realized that they were doing it or if they did, they were really, really good. But both Stephanie and Matthew Jarvis, who listeners, longtime listeners of the show will remember from episode seven, both of them were using me as examples when we were talking about niches. And they would say, you know, Adam, Adam's working with optometrists. And, and in my mind, my initial reflex was to say, yeah, and, and, and Dennis and pharmacists. And, <laughs> like, and don't forget all the other niches. Someone in the room yeah, might know someone who's a physician who will think I won't take them because you only said optometrists. So you got to say physicians That's exactly too. the thing. That's exactly, it was that scarcity mindset. I kept thinking, I don't want to miss out on an opportunity. So I kept initially having that knee-jerk reaction of, oh, no, no, I, I also work with pharmacists and dentists and physicians. And they, they again, whether they were doing it intentionally or not, I'm so grateful and indebted to them for doing that because as they kept saying that, I probably said it four or five times over the course of those two days, just in random examples. And in between that time, I just got to thinking, it's like, what if I did that? What if, what if I went all in on optometry? What would that start to look at? And I started to give myself permission. And I think that's one of the biggest breakthroughs that I personally realize that advisors need to realize as well is it's okay to just start thinking outside the box. It's okay to give yourself permission to ask questions of, what if I did it this way instead of that way? It's okay to kill some sacred cows if, if it means getting your practice more in alignment with this ideal vision of what you have for your personal life because so often our professional life slowly but surely starts eating its way into our personal life. And that's where I was. I was at this point where continuing to do the same thing over and over, we've all heard that definition of insanity – Right. And one of the phrases that I've absolutely loved and empowered is no problem can be solved with the same consciousness that created it. And so I just started to give myself permission to think, what if? What if I did this? What if I did that? What if I went on all optometry? And from there, the floodgates just opened up. And I started to realize as soon as I started thinking about content creation and marketing efforts and initiatives, both in person and digitally, from a pure optometry standpoint, I, I just, I leveraged up and I just went all in, like I said, burn the ships and one of the best decisions I've ever made in coming up on 12 years in the business. There's a striking point to it that, you know, just like as human beings, I think our, our brains just naturally want to try to categorize the world and how we see things so that we can explain them and talk about them, refer to them. So to me, there's something really striking about the 
the story you're telling of being at Limitless and and you know you specialize in optometrists and doctors and vets and and chiropractors and like you're doing the whole VDoc thing and 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 they just kept saying optometrist that to me that that's kind of part of the point that you know right or wrong like we we kind of want to put people into boxes just as we think about them and categorize them in our heads, like it happens all the time with clients. You know, if, if, if the first thing you ever helped a client with was an insurance issue, you're their insurance person. And if the first thing you ever helped them with was a rollover, you're their rollover person. And like, even with clients, it often takes a lot of work on an ongoing basis to continuously remind clients that what you do is broader than like the one thing that they came in for originally because they tend to just put you in that bucket in their heads and then sit there. And so you, when you're in the world of comprehensive advice, it's kind of a pain in the butt sometimes to get bucketed because you're always trying to pull clients back to say, but I do all these other things too. Exactly. But there's also a way that you leverage that, which is, look, if everybody just finds it really easy to think of you as the optometrist guy, just be the optometrist guy. It makes it easier for everyone. It really does. <laughs> yeah, it really does. And that's where... Another one of my favorite quotes that I've learned, and this one I pulled from Tim Ferriss, he has one of his famous TED Talks is, you know, instead of doing goal setting, do some fear setting exercises. I think it's a 12 or 13 minute TED Talk. And in that, he quotes Seneca the Younger, right? The famous Stoic philosopher. And his quote is, we suffer more in our imagination than in reality. And in my imagination, the suffering that I was doing in my own practice right now, in the current state of what it was from a profitability standpoint and a number of hours working, you know, I, I was working in that practice. I was working in my practice and making what I was making all the while wanting nothing more than to grow it to the point where my wife, who I wouldn't be in this practice if it wasn't for her in the beginning of the practice, basically helping to subsidize on the personal side our lifestyle and our expenses until I could get the practice up to where it was self-sustaining and starting right. to take a little paycheck. But yet she was working in a practice, she was working in a, in a work environment that was by all accounts toxic. And it was frustrating me that I couldn't figure out what the recipe was to grow my income substantially to replace an optometrist salary, which you know, wife was a six-figure earner. Yeah, so it, it wasn't like we had to replace a $30,000 entry-level right, type. Get, get two of those big clients in your square. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit more than yeah. that. And so I was I was suffering in my own reality, but I was also suffering in my own imagination as well. And however it happened, the confluence of those events happened such that, you know what, even though I was suffering in my own reality, or even though I was suffering in my own imagination, being comfortably uncomfortable in reality didn't push me to the next level until I, again, gave myself permission to just say, what if? So what does the business model actually look like at this point? You've kind of mentioned like separate fees for planning from investments. You you'd said at one point that you're trying to even further refine the model down as you go like deeper and deeper into the optometrist niche. So what's the What's the actual business model at this point that you're finding works for this clientele that you're serving? So I've, I've made peace with the fact that I basically have like a legacy business model and a new client business model. And that new client obviously is, is for new ODs going forward. So on the legacy side of things, 
2018 was a period of transition in bringing our existing client base more in alignment with the value that we were delivering from a service standpoint and getting that revenue more in alignment with what we were doing from a planning perspective. And so I had clients on all different kinds of fee schedules. And my biggest mistake, the number one biggest mistake when I when I reflect back on the decisions that I made and the pricing of my services back in the last, call it eight years of my life, it was the fee that I charged was what I thought the client could afford versus what I believed the value being delivered was. And so I had some clients, because I was operating from a premise of scarcity, I, I use the example when I talked with our advisors about this journey, I use the example of I was kind of like a nomad walking in the desert. And I just every now and then I happened upon a picnic basket full of food and water. And I had better well eat because I didn't really know when the next one was going to come along. Mm. So even if it was you know, 40% of something was better than 100% of nothing. And so because of that, I compromised so many conditions of what I wanted my business to look like. And it was a slow, the metaphor that gets thrown out there, death by a thousand cuts. It wasn't death by a thousand cuts, but with every new client that I brought on with an inconsistent fee schedule, it was creating more and more disparity between the business that I envisioned having versus what it was growing into. And so 2018 was becoming clear in working through and defining what that service model looked like, what the various service model looks like, and then raising fees, not on the AUM side of things, because I've always had a consistent fee schedule in that. That fee schedule is 125 basis points on the first half million, 1% on half million to a million, 75 on one to three, and then anything over three is at 50 bips. And so that had always been consistent. It was on the financial planning fee side of things where I had some clients that were still paying $400 a year for planning because you talked about the expectation that was set in the very beginning, right? That was the expectation. That was how they encountered me, how they started working with me. And because I never reset that expectation, that's what they just continued to experience. And so it finally, I finally got to the point of becoming courageous enough which bred the confidence to have the fee raising conversations. And on average, we raise fees a hundred percent on planning clients and our biggest Ooh, increase. That's a, that's a big number right there on, on average, we raised our fees a hundred percent. And then on, on a couple of our clients, I think our biggest fee increase was a 300 some percent increase. I had been charging someone like $1,500 a year and we raised it up to $4,500 on a planning fee. And they also had AUM with us, but it was on the planning fee that we, that we went from $1,500 to $4,500. And that was, that was an interesting conversation, but it was one that, that I was convicted in what I wanted my practice to look like. And I was finally at peace with knowing that on the business development side of things, I had a sustainable, repeatable, and scalable process that if I ended up losing some client relationships because of this fee increase, would I be devastated personally? Devastated may be the wrong word, but I would be hurt from an emotional and personal standpoint because of just the personal connection I had with those clients. Right. But I was okay doing that because when I did the math, so on our new client, on our new optometrist that come on board, if you're a practice owner and we're working on both the business and practice, it's five ninety five a month with a thousand dollars upfront. So it comes out to about eighty one hundred dollars a year 
for ongoing financial planning. And then if there's assets under management or retirement plans, that is a completely separate fee schedule. And so going forward with that, I knew when I did the math, all right, so if I have one new OD client that never moves over a single dollar with me, and I have in the first year $8,100 worth of revenue, I can afford, quote unquote, to lose X number of lower tier clients. And I just started getting into this mindset and this rhythm of for every new OD client that I brought on, I'd go to my mm-hmm. list of clients and I'd find the bottom tier. It's like, okay, time to line up conversations with this client, this client, this client, this client, this client, because I knew worst case scenario, I'm revenue neutral at the end of it. And through this entire process, both by my own accord in having the conversations with them and quite literally saying, look, your financial plan right now is kind of on autopilot. I don't think you need to pay me. My new fee schedule is $3,300 per year on, on basic financial planning, so $275 a month. And and so it's like we've done all the heavy lifting. You're a couple of young, decent-earning individuals. Fund your Ross. We've got the insurance in place. Like your financial plan is in place. I, I don't I, I don't think it's worth. I think you're better off allocating what you would pay me in funding your Roths or funding your 529s because these were individuals that had been paying four, five, six hundred dollars a year. And I just I personally just didn't feel right in doing that at my fee schedule. Now if they wanted to work with an advisor, I had other relationships lined up. I would refer them to XYPN.com or XYPlanningNetwork.com to find another advisor that might be more in alignment with their with their economics. But out of that, I I I'm trying to think exact numbers, but it was, I can count on one hand, the number of relationships that I, that I ended up either they left me or we mutually just agreed to part ways, which is why I've been able in part, why I've seen almost 80% growth in revenue since 2017 through 2019. So I love this framing of like, once you got firm with the new clients in your niche, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to charge is $595 a month plus a thousand up front and get really firm with that. This like trade off effect for every new good client I get that's in my niche, I'm going to go back to a handful of the old ones and, and either we'll right size them or I get fired. But either at worst, I'm revenue neutral and at best, they stay with me with a fee that's commensurate with my value. And then, then I win on both. But that like, you paired them together to get comfortable with these conversations. I had to play games with myself because if I if I operated purely from from the mindset that I had been sitting in this entire time, nothing else would have changed. And so I became self-aware enough to realize that I needed to change the recipe. I needed to change the script. And for me, reframing the way in which I thought about not the client relationship, and that was the hardest part in going through this in I had one client feel bad saying this. She was in tears when I when I told her what the new fee schedule was. And she I don't want to say she hung up on me, but it was it was certainly a there wasn't a whole lot of pleasantries after or a whole lot of small talk after that conversation. And she ended up calling back five, ten minutes later and just said, I I apologize. I I, I cut the conversation short. I was just really hurt by what you're doing in your business and how that affects me. And she un- she understood, and I think that was one of the biggest surprises when I was having these conversations with my existing clients because, let's face it, I, I'm making it no secret to the world that 
my firm is where you're going to go if you're an optometrist. So existing clients are seeing this when they come to our website to log into their Orion portal or eMoney or upload something to us through ShareFile. So I've had to run two parallel sets of communications, one with our existing clients of letting them know this is the forward direction of the practice, but it's not going to come at a compromise to the service that we're going to deliver, while also making sure from a proactive standpoint for new clients or potential relationships, if you're an OD, this is where you need to be. And it kind of rhymes. I never really thought about that. <laughs> so, so how did you roll out the news and have this conversation with, with people? I mean, fee increased conversations are hard for everyone. So they were. Like, they were. How did you end up breaking the news? Like, you know, send them a letter, do phone calls, wait for their annual review meetings. Like, what did you do? How do you frame it when you're, you know, again, it's not like you're just raising them by a hundred bucks a month or a thousand dollars in the year, which is still a pretty material number for a lot of people. Like you're, you're doing one to 300% fee increases. So how do you like how are you actually introducing this conversation so i did it all on the premise of the annual review with a few exceptions if they would call in and need to see me outside of normal review schedule we would put it on the schedule during that time but through through the process of kind of reinventing the service model we adopted what has had a significant impact not only in our efficiency in the practice but also just in my ability to have a better balance and quality of life and time off in the practice we 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 grouped all of our clients into basically three what we call blitz months for reviews so we do client reviews in february june and october and so we would just look at okay above the line, below the line, anybody that was below the line, whenever they were coming up for a review, we would make sure to add that to the conversation. And I had it with, I had it in person sitting across from the client. I went back and forth on, should I send them a letter? Should I preempt them to what's coming? Prepare them versus drop, dropping the bomb. Yeah. In person. And I opted to not do that. I don't really know, I'm trying to think of why, you know, what was what was the coping mechanism behind the scenes of why I didn't do that? But I put it on the on the schedule, on the agenda that we would send them. The closest that I did was we put it on the agenda. I forget exactly how we phrased it. It was something along the lines of new financial planning fee or or sign new financial planning engagement. But there was never many there was there wasn't any mention of discuss new financial planning fee increase. And so what it came to be is basically me having the conversation towards the end of the meeting. And we would basically just say, look, we've had to come to some understandings of, of where our fee is in relationship to the market, as well as the cost of doing business. And as our practice has grown, so have our financial obligations and our expenses. And because of that, we are addressing a fee increase across the board for all of our financial planning clients. Your previous fee of X is now going to be Y. And we, we certainly don't expect you to make that commitment at this time. I understand that I didn't give you any precursor to that. We're going to assume that you're going to continue working with us. It'd be our privilege and pleasure to continue to serve you at the, at the capacity. But I certainly understand and I want to welcome any questions or discussions now or after the fact if, if, if you no longer want to continue working with me. And we will do everything that we can to help you transition to a new relationship to a new advisor. That was kind of a variation on the theme. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty gentle. Yeah, you know, matter of fact, but just here's where we are, and yeah, 
And I only had one client that ended up, most of them actually just committed in the appointment, which surprised me. Most of them were just, oh, okay. I, I mean, technically, like, when your average fee increase is 100%, like, you could have lost half of them. It actually still would have gone okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and mathematically at least. Exactly. And, and but that's the interesting part is that when we when we think about percents, there's no context around that percent, right? When I say percent, I'm talking about I had some clients that were paying a thousand dollars a year and I lever I, I increased their fee up to thirty three hundred or eighteen hundred or twenty eight hundred, right? Well, that's where I say we've kind of had that that legacy planning increase right. where I didn't want to go to every client that was paying a thousand and say it's a thousand. It's now going to be forty five hundred. So I, I do have this vision over the next year of stepping that up periodically for so existing clients. So there'll be a few that are going to get nudged again. Correct. Correct. And and I'm struck as well of just the core model as it is, like for optometrists at at five hundred and ninety five dollars a month with a, with a thousand up front. Like a lot of the advisors that we see out there right now doing. Monthly fees are are a hundred a month, a two hundred a month, three hundred a month. You know, Schwab's got their intelligent portfolios premium at thirty dollars a month, and you get access to a CFP. Like, how do you talk to clients about five hundred and ninety five dollars a month, eight thousand, I guess seventy two hundred dollars a year annually recurring? Like, that's a that's a healthy number to put it mildly. I I don't, and and I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but I haven't had to. Which I guess is part of the point, like yeah, relative to their income and their business, and that's part of it. This is a straightforward line item expense to reinvest in themselves and their business, and relative to their income, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I have I have one practice that I'm working with, and and I know we could go down the the rabbit hole of, well, should I change my fee schedule to one percent of gross receipts in their optometry practice or something along those lines and, and i know i could or one percent of net income to the practice or some this plus this i just don't want to deal with that i i've run i know the metrics of my practice the relationships that i'm working with the new ods that i'm bringing on for me to have a wildly successful practice that does everything for me personally and professionally that i want to have i need 50 optometrists like that's that 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 builds me a practice that is more wildly successful than I ever thought possible on an efficiency level that largely has been built because of the systems that we've put in place here. So I'm not I don't need I, I'm not going to try and reinvent a fee schedule that I don't need to reinvent. So the fee is the fee. Yeah. Well, and from a practical perspective, you know, if if an optometrist comes in, they only and their practice is only doing two hundred thousand dollars of revenue. Like this is going to be a painful fee for them. Exactly. When your typical successful optometrist at capacity is doing six hundred plus thousand dollars of of revenue, you know your your fee is about one and a, one to one and a half percent of their income. Exactly. Which is a very manageable number. I mean, we see lots of advisors that are just fine at one to two percent. Some that get up to about two and a half percent before just the number is so big relative to the client's income, they start to mock a little. So, you know, it, it just, it makes a lot of sense to me in that category that, you know, you, you don't have to go in and say, I charge you one to one and a half percent of your income or the gross receipts of your practice. You just put a number out there that says I charge $595 a month. And like, guess what? People for whom that is a really high percentage won't say yes. Exactly. And people for whom that's a manageable percentage will say yes. Yep. 
And that and that's that's where simplicity has been the ultimate in sophistication for me lately. Is that I, I've I've really tried to take things in the practice and systematize them and scale them and make them so that I don't have to worry about them. Since coming on board with Advice Pay, that we do all of our financial planning fees minus a very few. When I say few, I think three exceptions. Everything is done through advice pay on either a monthly or quarterly basis. So it's great from a predictability of future cash flow. We're not subjected to market swings. Now, yeah. our revenue, you know, we still do AUM and, and things like that. But it's it's been a nice diversifier in income stream. And it's where it's it fits the business model of the clients that we're serving. We we just right. brought on they're, they pay all their business bills on a monthly basis. Yeah. Like you're just in their monthly cash flow. Yeah. And 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 their liquidity, you've had other guests on that serve business owners, they're not liquid. They're all of their capital goes either in their back into their practice or in their 401k or profit sharing plan or cash balance plan in their practice. It's not like they have all of this liquidity. So if I was charging, we just brought on a great client that has, you know, I talked about the influence, the relationship equity influence. He's a very, very, very prominent name in the optometry space, but he doesn't have a single dollar of investable assets outside of his retirement plan. So if I was on a traditional AUM model, it, it wouldn't work and I would lose out on a huge opportunity to A, serve him and help him with his core with his core planning needs, but be on the additional benefits that could come down line of have, having someone like that on in the client family. So out of curiosity, though, I, I am wondering for this new sort of focus model for the optometrist, you've got your set financial planning fee schedule. You did say that that you treat the planning separate from the investments and the AUM stuff is on its own. So is it still the same AUM fee schedule you've had all along, uh, 125 bips up to 500,000 and then a million and then the breakpoints from there? Or are you doing like a separate lower fee schedule on investments because you've gone up on the planning side? Or what is that? what does that look like now as a blended model for for the new ODs going forward? New ODs going forward, I haven't changed that pricing schedule. I, I've toyed with it and Stephanie would Probably if she was here, just punch me in the arm and say, that's your own limiting belief. If they're willing to pay, then that's it's up to them to see value in it. They're so, already finding the value in what you're charging. Why are, why are you charging differently? Exactly, exactly. So as of right now, I'm not making any adjustments to the AUM fee schedule. What I may do going forward is, and again, this is just me thinking about or what I've been thinking about is maybe get towards some aggressive breakpoint down the road, anything over a million or something like that. Just because, again, we run a very basic investment management process. It's nothing that's proprietary. I'm not glued to trading screens or anything like that. So it's not where we're spending a lot of our time and energy with clients, but it still does provide a lot of value, case in point, to the client that said, well, I'd like to be conservative, so can I be in the S&P 500? So it's still about helping them avoid mistakes that they would otherwise make in the absence of us providing guidance. But no, I don't see reinventing that anytime soon. So what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business? You're, you're 10 plus, almost 12 years in now. What surprised me the most about growing it was Probably the one thing that I didn't understand or didn't comprehend enough when I left Waddell and Reed back in 2011 was the sense of community that I needed. We're on this island as entrepreneurs, mm. as practice owners, and even if you do have a team around you that is working with you and serving you and your clients, 
there's no substitute for having a community of other advisors. And so that was one of the things that I didn't understand would impact me as much as it would. So not having that was probably, which, which I think the byproduct of that was me not having an outlet to share a lot of the challenges and struggles and obstacles that I was feeling between the years. And that's where finding, I joke with people, but it, it, it's, you know, finding, I don't, I don't even want to call it a program because I, it's not a program to me. Finding my family, finding my community, my tribe within Limitless has been, would not be here without, would not be at this place in my practice, in my life with my wife being able to stay at home with our two little girls and have that major accomplishment and being able to provide that benefit to my, that wouldn't have happened without having that family around me. So that was probably the hardest part is trying to do it on your own without a family behind you. Yeah. It's one of those interesting effects that I think is underappreciated or undercriticized or whatever in, in, in the independent world that one of the things the large firm employee environment always had was just a community, a branch, all these other advisors and people that were there who, you know, go out and share drinks with after a crappy cold calling. Exactly. (laughs) You you started out of the gate that, you know, in the independent environment, even, even in large independent broker dealers, I mean, I know you were at Cambridge for a while, you know, there, there's, I mean, you've got other advisors, there's a national conference, like there's, there's some opportunities to connect with the other advisors, but it's not the same as when you're in a, a large firm employee environment with just a whole bunch of fellow advisors in a branch location right where you are. And that a lot of advisors, I think, underestimate how important it is that you need some pathway to find your community, to find an outlet, to find you know support with peers, or you just kind of get stuck in your own four walls, or, or as you were saying, like you, you get stuck in your head and all the stuff that goes on between your ears that, that has no outlet when you're on your own. Well, and, and that motion creates emotion, right? When you're around other advisors, when you're being able to bounce ideas off one another, share in successes, commiserate in challenges and, dare I say, failures that you encounter along the way, when you're able to share that and have have your family around you help you shoulder that and then reflect with you and learn on that and then use that as Right. You can either use it as fuel or fertilizer. If you use it as fuel to rebound and project forward, knowing that you have a group of people behind you that are cheering you on and helping you through that, that is certainly a lot easier to do with that than trying to do it on your own. Not saying that it can't be done on your own, just for me personally, it it was it was much more beneficial to have those to have people around me. So what was the low point for you? Which one? (laughs) I think the low, I don't necessarily think that I can point it to one specific day. It was probably a period of time that I would say mid-2017, 2016, 2017, when I was just kind of spinning my wheels in my practice and what I, what I was really frustrated with and just could not figure out what kind of what I alluded to earlier is that I wasn't really making progress. I was busy, but I wasn't growing and all the while that I'm doing this and can't figure out how to get to that next level in my practice and get that momentum back, my wife is having to go to a job that she can't stand. She, When we were talking about her, when we finally got to the point of her quitting and staying at home with her little girl, she said something that neither of us will ever forget. She said, I can't believe that I'm working, that a company that I can't stand is getting the best of me and the people that I love are getting the worst of me. 
because she was she would come home just exhausted and as a, she would see her record i think was 53 patients in one day now that was pre ops post ops exams but that that's a huge caseload for for any od any clinician for that matter and i was so frustrated and mad at myself that i couldn't get out of my own way and because of that she's having to go to work at a job like that to help support our family, pay down her student loans, et cetera. So that that was that was probably the low period, maybe not a point, but just a, a valley that I was in. And so that has to be transformative now that you go through this change, revenue's up 80% in two years. It's up enough that you actually can get to the point where she can take the time and and not need to do that work anymore. Yeah, it's it's uh it's it's hard for me to to not get emotional thinking about it and talking about it because teamwork makes the dream work, right? Cliche phrase alert. But I wouldn't be where I'm at right now without her love and support. And to be able to reciprocate that and give her the – it's not like she's ever never going to practice again. But to give her that freedom and flexibility to – practice because she wants to in an environment that fulfills her, like my business is now fulfilling me, is one of the best gifts that I've been able to give her and and and, and thus our family. And it's going to be exciting to see where we go as a family forward in part because of the trajectory of both of our businesses and, and professions. So what advice would you give young advisors coming in and, and starting a firm today? You know, what, what, what do you know now that you could have told Waddell and Reed you from 20, from 10 years ago? <laughs> oh, there's so much. I think the first, the, the two pieces of advice that I give or that, that I would say, whatever you think your fee should be, double it. So as a new advisor, if you think, oh, I'm only going to charge, I, I, I come in contact with advisors that are, that are adopting the monthly model and they're charging, like you said, $50 or 75 or $100 a month. And it, again, all depends on their business model, what they want and things like that. But I wonder, my first question to those advisors is kind of like what I realized with myself. Are you charging that because that's what you think your clients can afford? Or are you charging that because that's what you truly believe your value is? And if it's what they can afford and it is your ideal client that you want to work with, then more power to you, Godspeed. But if it's the former, if you're charging it because it's what you think they can afford and you're scared to charge more because of the value that you know you deliver to that client, then you're doing yourself and your client's you're inhibiting the potential, you're inhibiting the latent potential within yourself and within your practice. So set your fee, whatever they are right now. If you're truly wondering, should I increase my fees? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then back to the first part of our conversation, niche, 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 niche. I mean, it, it, it has, I wish that I would have done this. I wish that I would have had this breakthrough and, you know, Stephanie and Matt in our conversations, I wish that they would have so eloquently, again, whether intentional or unintentional, I wish I would have gotten that nudge years ago because I had the momentum. I, I was already writing for the optometry publications four years ago. It was just kind of piddling along. I wish I would have gone all in. So find that niche and and, and double down. And then double your practice in two years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Results not guaranteed your performance. Maybe. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what comes next for you? Like, what are you working on from here? 
So I've, I've, I've really kind of adopted this philosophy of trying to leverage my time. You know, I have, I have 168 written on a sticky note on my, on my desk. Mm, 168 hours in a week. Exactly. And so I'm really trying to be intentional and dedicated with my time. I have found kind of a, a closet passion in working with other advisors and helping them systematize their practice. And I find like I get a lot of energy in working with them and, and that's utilizing work and specifically within Redtail as our CRM and back to my process days and my standard operating procedure days at Baxter. I just, I always gravitated towards having a process. I remember when I first opened an, my first account at Waddell and Reed, I was looking for the SOP. I was looking for the procedure manual, like, how do you open an account? Well, you get the form. Where do I get the form? Well, it's on the internet. Where on the internet? How What's do the I login? get on the internet? Yeah, exactly. Like- <laughs> <laughs> and and so I just didn't. I, I didn't have. I knew. You know, the A was get the client. Z was C to, was service a client. But I did not have a B to Y. And so, from my early adoptions into Redtail CRM, we just started building out workflows for every single process. And we have, I think, sixty eight workflows now that took my dad to Canada at the beginning of July this last just a month or so ago. And it's a very calming feeling when you know that everybody in your office, who's responsible for doing what, when does it need to get done and for which client is in a system. There are no cracks. There's a net around everything and stuff's getting done when it needs to get done. There's no, and and everything's in one system. And so I started presenting that to advisors, quite honestly, by accident at a Cambridge practice management session one time. This was back in 2013, I think. We did a whiteboarding session on how to workflow a client appointment. And they're trying to draw it out on a whiteboard. And I'm just in the back holding my head and just kind of like, no, 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 no. And so finally, I just said, look, can I show you what I built? I pulled up Redtail on the fly, showed them what we had built. I had a line of advisors afterwards saying, that's really cool. Can I have that? I said, yes. I had one advisor afterwards say, dude, this is awesome. You should charge for this. And I said, that's a pretty good idea. I think I might. And <laughs> Okay, then. <laughs> and Integrated Consulting and Advisory Solutions was born in 2014. And so I've spent a portion of my weeks since that time working with advisors and firms around the country, helping them implement, implement our system into their practice. So I, I, I tell clients or I tell advisors – Instead of a blank canvas of trying to create workflows, we're going to give you the paint by numbers. You're still going to have to customize it a little bit to your firm because, right, your service model is slightly different than ours. You have a different custodian, but you're going to have the paint by numbers of everything that you're going to need to prospect, onboard, service, a client relationship. What has empowered me in doing that, it comes back to that sense of community that I talked about. It it invigorates me to help other advisors get to that point of efficiency and effectiveness in their service model and realize some of the freedoms and flexibility that I've been able to see in my practice because I'm confident in knowing that my team is on is on everything that needs to get done. I know what I need to do. They know what they need to do and lather, rinse, repeat. And so that's that's integrated consulting and advisory as opposed to integrated planning and wealth, which is the Correct. advisory firm. Correct. So, so I guess specifically for advisors on Redtail who can leverage these Redtail workflows that you've built? Correct. Yeah, Redtail has been gracious enough to let me play in their sandbox. My philosophy is, look, I want to help advisors leverage all aspects of technology. I've implemented an incredible, what I feel to be a pretty decent amount of it, of technology in my practice on all aspects of it. 
And I've seen the benefits specifically within the CRM and the systems that we've built in there and workflows are no exception to that. I've just found that a lot of advisors and their teams struggle with workflows, specifically just dedicating the time necessary to to build them. And it's just something that I've had a closet passion for that has kind of birthed this this additional little passion project of mine. Very cool. Well, so we'll have a a link out to it as well for any advisors who are interested. So the, uh, this is episode 140. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 140, we'll have a link out to Adam's integrated consulting and advisory. If you're struggling with your workflow building, as I know a lot of us do, it's more power to folks like you that come in with that mindset. I think a lot of us, that is not how our brains are wired. And so uh, as you experienced seeing a bunch of advisors at a whiteboard trying to make a, a workflow. Well, and here's why I did it real quick too, just because I I know myself well enough to know that if I don't have a system in place, it's not if, it's how many things are going to fall through the cracks. And so I did it being partly because of the training that I had in the pharmaceutical world of just always growing up in an environment where you had standard operating procedures and very early on and quickly being in the absence of that, I knew how important they were. And I also knew that if I didn't have those guardrails, I would compromise client service, something would be missed. And so I, I, I knew out of necessity that I needed to have those. And they're written in such a way so that the advisor is involved in as few things as possible, delegated to team members around them, because an advisor should not be focusing their time on those back office tasks. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes always is just that that word success means different things to different people. And so you're on this well, I guess like success track with a with an accelerator now up up eighty percent in two years and, and doing four hundred thousand dollars of revenue and a great model to a great niche going forward. So the the business is certainly on track, but I'm wondering how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I'm shocked that you would ask that question, Michael. I've never heard the podcast before, but it's got to come from left field. I, yeah, I know, yeah. So I've been giving that a lot of thought because, again, anticipated the question coming. And I think that the best way that I can answer it is to be proactively and cognitively aware of the path that my business is going on to the extent that doesn't compromise the personal conditions that I've set for myself and my family. So I don't want to, as I've had this growth and we experience this growth and I'm starting to have more and more relationships reach out and more opportunities. I can see very quickly how that could start creeping its way back into my personal life where I'm not able to take days off or I'm working at night or have to go in on the weekends or things like that. And so my wife and I with two little girls, we have a five-year-old and an 18-month-old. And so you know, we only get these experiences once. And so I, I want to continue to grow the practice, do great work. And I want clients to, new ODs to come because of me and stay because of us. And so the focus right now is on building a team within the practice that the clients come on board, but yet then I have more team members around me to serve the client relationship and do the the financial planning stuff that most advisors do. I want to be more in that finder and binder method of bringing in relationships and doing what A, I, I feel like I'm really good at doing and what brings me joy. So that kind of intersection of turning your vocation into a vacation, but again, not at the compromise of personal quality of life. And I just, I love how you frame that, that you want to get to a point where they come because of me as you're out, the one out there doing the the marketing to the niche and the podcast and the rest. 
but they stay because of us and the and the team that supports the clients. They're clients of the firm. I've made, I, that's why, well, number one, when you look at my last name, it, it's horrible for marketing. Yeah, it's a little, so, it's a little <laughs> rough from a marketing perspective, yes. But, but more importantly, I've, I never want to be about me. I want clients to be clients of the firm. And, and up to this point, I've, I am the firm from a client or from an advisor standpoint, but that's not the end goal. So I want clients to know from the very beginning, you may have found us because of me and my presence in the optometry community, but you're going to very quickly realize that it's because of the great team that we have, which is why you're going to stay. I love it. I love it. Well, I, I think we'll have to we'll have to call you back in about five years and 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 see how that trajectory is is going given the the growth path that you're on. I'd be honored to share an update at that time. Awesome. Well, thank you, Adam Schmela, for joining us here on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. And thank you, Michael, for sincerely from the bottom of my heart for all the work that you've done, all the information that advisors have gained from you. It is we are truly indebted to you for the work that you've done in our profession. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.